You can do this. You can do this. It's an, it's another episode of your show. It's another episode of your podcast that you do every week. But every week that you do the podcast, you get so nervous about it. Why? Why are you so nervous? You shouldn't be. It's like there's no one else here. It's just you in a room. Well, I mean, I guess this week is a little bit different because this week you have a second a second camera that you've hooked up so you can record to TikTok? What? <clears throat> All right. Just start the show. Here it comes. <laughs> what a build up. Okay. All right. All right. Hey folks, welcome to the Friday show here on the Culture Jacked podcast. And today on the show, we're going to be talking about all kinds of things. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Justice League. We're going to talk about Craven the Hunter and Keanu Reeves. In other Keanu Reeves news, we're going to be talking about CD Projekt Red and the way they got hacked, unfortunately. Source code source code was stolen. Uh, also, He-Man Masters of the Universe, we're going to be talking about how games are now going to be $70. But before we get into any of that, did you happen to catch the Monday Madness show? A few days ago. It was a great episode. And on the episode, we celebrated here at Culture Jack our 100th episode. And so Anthony put together a wonderful little montage, a little homage to Culture Jack. It was just very, very nice. It was very nostalgic because it, it, it hit back on some of those old episodes that we did where we were still working together and not... Not separated by time and space and all of these things that mere mortals have to deal with and the consequence thereof. So anyway, that's not the show, though. Today on the show, after I get through all of this news, because I do have a, a few pieces of news to talk about as well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about archival and preservation, specifically of video games, because... There are museums for those types of paintings and, and monuments. There are libraries to preserve books, historical documents, and articles through time. And preservation efforts are made for different landmarks and monuments. But how do they do how do they do that for video games? Is this a consideration beyond my meager scope? Is it something that the industry has thought of or preservationists and conservationists have thought of long before I did? And I suspected that it was. And in researching, I found out that that was actually the truth. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all that. But first, let's get into some news stuff. So... I did I did do an extra episode this last week. Did you did you catch it on Saturday? I put it out late Saturday night cuz I I kind of procrastinate on as is the way of my people, if you'll recall, but the episode was all about WandaVision 
and specifically the fifth episode of WandaVision, where I was able to discuss freely without the worry of spoiling it for someone, because I had been including these kinds of recaps and these kinds of discussions on the Friday show. But it was nice to be able to set all that aside and just just go with it. Just talk about this show uh, completely free. And I, I want people to get in on the discussion. So if you see the WandaVision video, you hear the WandaVision audio, and I'm going to do it again this week. So today on the Friday show, and then tomorrow we'll have another show, which is going to be on today's episode, and it'll be that sixth episode that hopefully everyone's seeing today. I know I'm, I'm watching it today. I've probably watched it. By the time you listen to this podcast, if you, if you listen to it on the day of release, I probably will have watched that WandaVision episode at least two times. If you listen to it on Saturday, I'm going to have three under my belt, guaranteed for sure, especially if the surprises and the, uh, the hits were as big as they were last week. This is something... I mean, that you're going to be hearing of. And so the first piece of news that we have uh, is WandaVision's Spanish voiceover actor was fired. Um, he was fired by Disney for revealing uh, Quicksilver's. Whoops. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll bleep that out in post. Am I a good enough editor to do that? We're going to find out. We're going to find out if I spoiled you for last week's episode or if I'm just a, a brilliant editor that I can make one beeping noise. People that do editing on like video and audio are like, you're an idiot. <laughs> it's true. It's true. What was the guy's name? Um, Rodri Martin. Last month we talked about it where he had put out a tweet saying that he was so honored to be doing the, the dub voiceover work once again the Spanish dub for Evan Peters' version of Quicksilver in the X-Men franchise, which spoiled everybody uh, who paid attention to the news, or if you were listening to Culture Jacked, that we were going to get an appearance by Quicksilver. And then he deleted the tweet and everything, everything blown over, but apparently Disney, they really take their secret seriously. And though I don't, I'm not excited that this man lost his job, um... I was trying to find a silver lining. I guess I, I can't really, but um, it is a bum deal that uh, that he got fired. I I was very excited about Quicksilver's cameo on the show, though. Uh, what else do we have in comic book movie news? Zack Snyder's Justice League black suit. <laughs> it made it sound like there's a whole new Justice League. It was like... Is this a Justice League that uh, is coming where it's like a darker version? No, he's got a black suit. Apparently, he had one in the original Justice League, but then, you know, Joss Whedon took over that. Joss Whedon has got some allegations against him right now. Um, abuse allegations, inappropriate behavior allegations from cast members from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And so many of them are kind of putting their support behind Ray Fisher, Cyborg, well, he's, you know, no longer Cyborg or he's not going to be playing Cyborg in at least the Flash movie. We'll see if there's any return to his character elsewhere. But they were throwing their support in behind and saying, yeah, we also have 
stories where Joss Whedon is not the best character. Anyway, Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League Black Suit Superman clip finally released in HD. And so this is a clip where Superman bombs down and he visits Alfred in his black suit. I just watched Justice League again. I know I'm going to do that thing with Anthony where we both watch the old show and then we're going to come back and we're going to watch the new version and see kind of what the differences are and see if these reshoots, if the Snyder Cut makes this film a worthwhile film. In my guess, in my estimation, it will. But I guess that's remain remains to be seen. Um, oh, yeah. I, I'm, I am recording this episode on dual screens right now. I've got a web camera set up. I also have a phone set up over here. So I'm using my phone camera as well. And I'm going to be putting some clips of this show onto the app TikTok. I just started, I just, I signed up for TikTok. Yes, I made a, I made, I made an account and the account, if you're interested in following is at house for my personas. And it's, I think <laughs> the name is, uh, Dustin, Dustan the hero or something along those lines. But I made the account because my wife, my brother, my sister-in-law, my sister, they all send me these TikToks, and I'd have to watch them online if I could watch them. And so I decided I'd make one. And then I just started making TikToks. I think I have three. They're not very good. They're stupid. They're ridiculous. But the thing about these TikToks, and it cracks me up because I've been on the internet for a little while and I've been a not like a huge personality, but I've been a personality on the internet for a little bit. And I've got the, the podcast. I've had YouTube channels. I've had other social media accounts that are just like a branded version of the real life me. And none of them have had the kind of interaction, engagement and viewership like I've had on TikTok. It's so bizarre to me because all of the things that I made on TikTok, I wasn't even trying to make like it, they, they have, zero effort. I I think just the discovery is maybe that much greater on TikTok. And also there is some real comedic genius that can be found on this app that I I can't find elsewhere. I mean, you have to condense everything into a minute or less, but there are some people that are just so clever that that format it works insanely well for them. Anyway, Justice League. Back to the news. We're going to get back to it here. Um, Masters of the Universe. So there's a new He-Man in the Masters of the Universe. Well, it's just Masters of the Universe being directed by Kevin Smith. It's from Mattel and Netflix. So it's going to be on Netflix there. And he just released a Twitter video talking about his composer, who he said they've got a composer now, and it's Bear McCreary. And I'm not familiar with the character's work, but on this Twitter video, Kevin Smith said, hey, you know, we've got the guy and here is the theme song. You get to, as soon as I get this, you're going to hear it right now. So apparently he was watching a video that had it in it as well, but it gave me such an overwhelming sense of nostalgia because I haven't watched He-Man in a long time. And the last time that I watched it, I was going back 
to revisit some of that nostalgia that I had for the series in the first place. And the thing about nostalgia, and I've said it before, I'll probably say it again, is that nostalgia is, well, it's, uh, I, I, I don't know, like it's not good. Your brain plays a trick on you to make you think that something is better than it ever was before in the past. So I went back to watch He-Man years ago and I was like, this is terrible. Why would you do that? And I've heard Kevin Smith and other uh, directors and other producers say that we have the ability now, we have the effects, we have the technology, we have the animation, we have the skilled artisans that make these pieces of film, that make these pieces of art that adequately represent our nostalgia in a way that, that is now, I don't know, something that is palatable. So I am very excited to see this. And in this theme song, which was the, the transformation theme song, for those of you that used to watch He-Man, where he said, by the power of Grayskull. And then he would go, I have the power. And Kevin Smith's describing him turning his sword to Cringer, where he turns him into Battle Cat. And it just... I don't know. It stirred up inside of me some sense of nostalgia that I haven't felt for the original He-Man in a long time. Makes me feel a little weird. I'm challenging my own emotions and my own feelings talking about those strange feelings that I'm having for He-Man. But that's all right. That's all right. That's what is life but a journey of self-exploration and discovery. In other news, Craven the Hunter, Keanu Reeves... There was a rumor that he was going to be offered the job of Craven the Hunter. He was going to be offered that character. And then that rumor turned out to be true. And it looks like Sony Pictures uh, has offered him the role. I, I looked around online because this article that I'm reading off of here, well, referencing anyway, is from the 8th. And so... At the time of this recording, that's three days old, and I looked around online to see if there was any confirmation whether Keanu had accepted the role or not. And to my knowledge, he has not uh, accepted the role. And uh, so the project currently has the title of simply Craven, while the site explains that the tone is believed to be a mashup of Man on Fire and Logan. Interesting. Interesting. I hope Spider-Man appears in all these, in the Venom, in Craven, in Mobius, Mobius, Morbius, because Mobius in Mobius is the character from Loki, who's going to be played by Owen Wilson in the TVA, the Time Variance Authority. Okay, what else do we have here? What else? I've got to get more things for you. Um, we've got a rumor here, so take this with a grain of salt. Bridgerton star... Reggie Jean-Page eyed to take over Black Panther mantle in upcoming sequel. And so this is all conjecture. This is all rumor. But he's reportedly being eyed to, um, to have a part in Black Panther 2. So this is, not a, this is not a character. This is not a replacement for the character T'Challa in Black Panther, which is good. Because no one wants that. Black Panther... Not Black Panther, but T'Challa was and is Chadwick Boseman. And so it would be wrong for them to try and have another T'Challa, T'Challa, T'Challa 
in this movie. A lot of folks, myself included, were very excited about the prospect of having Shuri play a Black Panther character. But that's maybe not going to happen now. Maybe it's going to be this guy. Uh, other people said that it'd be nice if Killmonger became Black Panther. He died. I don't want to cheapen his death. Um, I want Michael B. Jordan to play the human torch in one of these other shows in one of these other multiverse adventures, whether it, he comes in in WandaVision or he shows up in Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness, or he shows up in the next Spider-Man movie. I don't care, but that's where he needs to show up next. Hell, he could show up as Killmonger in one of those as well, or maybe not. Maybe sure he could be Killmonger in an alternate universe. Oh, I'm so excited about the multiverse in this thing. Um, so it seems like Marvel may have plans to introduce a whole new character. And so that could be where this fella takes takes on the role, which would be cool, which would be cool because Black Panther should live on. They're going to have to do a hell of a lot, whether it's a maybe it's a synthetic thing that Shuri creates to mimic the plant that was destroyed by Killmonger in the first Black Panther. Oh, other Justice League news. Uh, first official look of Jared Leto's Snyder cut Joker has been revealed. Now you look at this picture and you're like, okay, you guys are trying to play off of the good graces that Heath Ledger left behind in his version of the character, his depiction of the Joker in the dark Knight and the dark Knight rises. Was it the dark Knight rises? Yes, it was just the Dark Knight because he passed and then the Dark Knight Rises was was Bane. <laughs> you're only <laughs> you're new to the Joker. I was born in it, molded by it. That's Heath Ledger to uh, Jared Leto. I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. I'm so sorry. Anyway, uh, he looks like a he looks like. This is this is the meme where they go, Mom, can can we stop and get Joker? And Mom says, well, we've got Joker at home. And then this is Joker at home. Or maybe that was the actual Suicide Squad with the tattoos and everything. He doesn't have the tattoos. He's got long hair. His makeup is screwed up. I think that they should have just doubled down on the version that was in the Suicide Squad. I mean, I mean why not? Doesn't make sense to me. It makes absolutely no sense. Uh, another, okay. Oh, so this is why I wanted Michael B. Jordan to, to play the fantastic four human torch that he played in fan four stick in 2015 that flopped. But, um, by all accounts, a good human torch. I don't know. I didn't see the movie cause I heard it was terrible and I'm, I don't plan on seeing the movie anyway, but there's a rumor going around that Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness is going to bring Chris Evans back in two different roles. And so those different roles are the human torch. Cause remember Chris Evans played the human torch way back when in that other fantastic four, uh, I guess it was just a movie in its sequel, but he was fan. He was the human torch in the fantastic four. It's going to bring him back as the human torch. It's also going to bring him back as captain America, but the captain America from the comics where he played a, well, he didn't play, but that character was a Hydra agent and Captain America had been a Hydra agent all along and they eventually retconned it. So he was back being, you know, the good old honest 
American Captain America that everyone knows and loves. But man, that got a lot of people stirred up. A lot of people were very excited and very upset that Captain America was a bad guy this whole time. And so I'm very excited to see it. And I think that's a wonderful way to experience some of these characters in maybe a way that we wouldn't experience them in their standalone movies or in these big team up movies that they don't get these regular arcs in the, in the, in their entirety, maybe in a series, but we get to experience some of the bigger moments from the comics because there are so many with the character before they retire, before they hang up the cowl, before they hang up the gauntlets, before they hang up the Hulk hands, whatever, whatever they are. So I'm excited about that. We've got uh, Sonic the Hedgehog sequel news. He gets an official title and uh, a release date. And so the title of that is Sonic the Hedgehog 2. <laughs> How original. How amazing. Anyway, um, that date, what is the date? I believe it's the 8th of April, 2002. Yes, there it is. The uh, April 8th, 2002. I'm very excited about the next Sonic the Hedgehog movie, and I'm excited because the first one was amazing. It was a good adaptation of a video game. I don't think we've had a lot of those, to be frank with you. And so this one was a very, even though Jim Carrey did not turn into Dr. Eggman until the very end, I was still excited to have a decent Sonic the Hedgehog movie. The CW is moving ahead with a live-action Powerpuff Girls series. And there's a couple other series in this article that talks about DC's Naomi and the 4400 are all coming to the CW, which is cool. I, I may not watch these. I have my hands full with, you know, WandaVision and the MCU and the DCEU. Like, I don't, I don't think I can be lower myself. <laughs> To watch every superhero, every sci-fi, every supernatural show that comes my way. But I'm glad that there's more out there. I'm glad that the representation of these shows is strong and is staying strong. Powerpuff Girls, though. That was a mainstay on Cartoon Network. <laughs> Sugar. Spice. And everything nice. But <laughs> what was his name? But he added a... But he accidentally added an extra ingredient, Chemical X. And thus, the Powerpuff Girls were born. Fighting, ah, I can't remember it. I can't remember it. I'm sorry. The, reading down the article, it, sh, it's, it shows, it says, it, sh, it says and shows, it shows by way of words. It shows by letters combined in a certain pattern to create words, which in turn create sentences, which in turn convey thoughts or ideas, which then show a reader, a person who has gained the ability to decipher these letters, these words into meaningful thoughts and ideas. It then illustrates them to that person who is known as a reader, which I am getting close <laughs> I'm not there yet, but God dang it, I'm getting close. Anyway, the article goes on to say that this is going to be kind of a, the Powerpuff Girls have been in operation for a while and they're just kind of downtrodden. They're sullen. 
and, you know, just kind of a despirited a little bit. So I would, I would have loved to see like, you know, Powerpuff Girls in their heyday in a live action show and see how they did that. But, uh, it doesn't look like we're getting that. It looks like we're getting something, something much more else. So Thor love and thunder. Uh, this is some, some news out of there. So Chris Hemsworth, a hunk of a man and a really muscular dude is apparently his stunt double is unable to keep up with, with this guy's eating habits, with this guy's weightlifting, his bodybuilding habits. And Hemsworth is just getting absolutely huge. Let me see if I can find the quote here. Uh, so let's see. Uh, his longtime trainer, Luke Zochi, gushed to Australian podcast hosts Fitza, Fitzy, and Whippa on 1st of February 2021. All right, let's see if I can do an Australian accent. I apologize to any Australians that listen to this podcast. <clears throat> Mate, he's in phenomenal nick. He's the biggest he's ever seen. He's ever been. <laughs> it's ridiculous. He's actually the heaviest he's ever been. We weighed him the other day. He was 105 kilos. That's 231 pounds. He didn't say that. That's a, They added that for us Americans because we don't do conversions. Get out of here. Asked about the diet to, needed to maintain this extent of muscle mass. Zochi said, he's clean. It's just the amount of food. He's eating every two hour. I will run him a 450 calorie meal. He eats eight times a day while we're filming. So every two hours, I'm running him chicken and rice and a little bit of veggies. That's insane. That's a, that's a lot of calories. Well, I mean, he's, he's ripped. He's been putting up posts on Instagram and other social media that shows how big he is getting, but he's getting big and, uh, I can't, I'm a little jealous. Let's see. Um, yeah, his, his stunt doubles having a hard time keeping up. And then finally, the last bit of movie news that I have for you today, before we move on to the gaming stuff is the book series, Redwall. Uh, by Brian Jocks um, is finally getting a uh, a movie adaptation or a series adaptation. It looks like um, on Netflix, and so that's really cool. I remember reading Redwall when I was in like the fifth or sixth grade when I was very young. It was a good book series. I mean, I don't remember a lot about it, but just remembering that it exists brought back some nostalgia about little mice with swords and their adventures and made me think, you know, my son is getting into that age where his reading level is just, it is increasing at an exponential rate. I know it's very surprising. You might say, because his father is almost certifiably a moron as we just found out in his description of what reading is. But I thought it would be cool if he could get into that. I mean, I've already got him working on, one piece, the Japanese manga by Ichiro Oda. And he loves that. He loves that. But I think this red wall series would be right up his alley. So that's cool. That's coming. I don't see a date for it. I mean, that's a 20 book series. Looks like it got an animation back in 1999, but yeah, very excited about having red wall. Uh, become a series. All right, on to 
gaming stuff, I only have a couple tidbits that I wanted to share with you on the gaming side of things. Uh, the first of which is that E3 is reportedly moving forward with a digital event in June 2021. Now, this isn't surprising to anyone that's been paying attention. Anyone that's seen conferences here at the beginning of the year kind of mimic those conferences that we had in the in the middle and the end of last year, you know, after the coronavirus pandemic really took off. And so it's not surprising that that's still going on. And listening to some other sources, uh, Giant Bombcast, Game Scoop, I'm looking at you guys, the Entertainment Software Association, the ESA, has other reasons that they might not like to see an in-person event because apparently this organization has been floundering with what they've been doing with the event. And as other publishers have moved away from the event, looking at you, Sony, looking at you, who else? EA, EA does their EA play. Um, it kind of makes sense for them. And they were thinking that this was not so much a move last year because of the pandemic, but because of other things. And then they used the pandemic as an excuse to not put on the event. And so um, let's see, it would see three days of live streamed coverage over the course of June 15th through the 17th, uh, the days in which a physical E3 would normally take place. Now, if you all remember, I went to E3. Was it in 2018? It was a terrible event. And it wasn't terrible in that the presentation was bad or the games were bad. It was terrible because it was so dramatically oversold. There were eight nine-hour waits to play a, a game that you wanted. So even if you were there for all three days, you wouldn't be able to play every game that was on your anticipated list. I don't know why I said that so strange, but you wouldn't be able to play everything that you wanted and you just stand around in a sweaty public place with a bunch of sweaty public strangers. And now that I think about it, like events like that, it's no surprise that a virus like coronavirus could take hold so easily. We were we were butt to butt, elbow to elbow, nose to nose. I don't know how to act around people in public. And so I oftentimes put my nose right on their nose. And they're like, hey, man, did you want tomatoes on your Subway sandwich? And I said, no, I think I'm fine. I'm fine now with whatever this is. <laughs> So, yeah, E3's maybe going the way of the Dodo. Like, is it going away? I mean, it's possible. It's possible that because these other developers and studios and publishers have found out that they can have a audience that is as big as or bigger with digital events, looking at you, Nintendo, with your Nintendo Directs, that maybe they don't need a large presence at a physical event that they have to spend a lot more money, perhaps putting together. And there's other things that are kind of taking the place of E3. Like what was it called? The summer summer of games event with uh, Jeff, Jeff Keeley, I think is the host of that, that did a lot of the showcasing of the games that we saw last year. So I don't know. I don't know. Is E3 going away? It could be. Do I hope so? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. This is big news. This is big news. Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor's Nemesis system successfully patented 
by Warner Bros. And so that's got a lot of people upset. Now, if you didn't play this game, I haven't beaten this game, but I've played it. And it's amazing. For one, it's like it's like an open world game that's got a bunch of different missions, but there's a lot of, you know, goblins and orcs and things walking around in the world. I have to I guess I have to put a disclaimer that's saying I'm not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan, but I did enjoy the game very much. And as you fight these things, it's got kind of like the free flowing fight style of like a Batman Arkham game or like a Spider-Man game, I guess, where you just bounce from bad guy to bad guy. You get little alarms that trigger if someone's about to hit you and then different reactions that you can do. But if you are felled in battle and uh, you, you get shot by an archer and he's the guy that gets the last hit on you, the hero, and kills you, you come back to life, of course. But that archer gets a promotion in the army and seemingly like a stat upgrade and boost. And it shows him where his rank is. Is he a sergeant? Is he a lieutenant? Is he a general? Where he is in that army. And so you can have nemesis, like the system is called. You can have rivals that you go out to find or you come across again and they beat you again. They get another promotion in the army. And it's this constantly oscillating, uh, I guess, rank of, 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 you know, commanding officers in the army that you have to eventually take out the commanding officers so you can take out the, the king or the boss. Like I said, I didn't beat it. But a cool system nonetheless. And why it's got people upset is because things like this limit creativity. They limit the potential for other systems to kind of vibe off of these systems and make better processes, better systems, better games. And so a lot of people have, you know, they've compared it to things like the double jump, something that is, is universal in many, many platforming games that, you know, you jump and then you jump again in the air. Wouldn't be right to patent something like that. And then to those people, I would say, I'm sure that someone probably has, and I'm sure it's probably, probably Nintendo. <laughs> Because Nintendo does stuff like that all the time. Nintendo wants to have it all. Nintendo wants to be your go-to source for games and games alone. And they are very defensive of their intellectual properties. And that can be a problem, especially when it comes to preservation of games. And we'll talk about, uh, like I said, preservation um, and archival of video games here, here after the new, and we've only got two more news stories. So you don't have to wait that much longer. If, if you are here exclusively to hear me try and dissect something that is probably too weighty a topic for my own intellect, this is a good time to go get a snack, go use the bathroom, take a break. And come back and I'll be done talking about the news and then I can talk about this stuff with you. Although this is a podcast and so most likely if you're listening to it, you're probably listening on a phone. You could just take me to the bathroom with with you. Like I said before, like we've been in the bathroom together already. Like we can we can go again. I'm not going to say anything. I'm a digital representation of me that's been captured through a multimedia source. So it's like. 
your bathroom time is your own and it's your secret whether I'm in there with you or not. I'll never know. I mean, unless you tell me, please don't tell me. I don't want to know what kind of adventures I've been on necessarily. I mean, unless they're cool adventures, then tell me what kind of adventures I've been on. But don't tell me you took the biggest dump of your life with me. Actually, do tell me that you took the biggest dump of your life. That's a crowning achievement. That's that's something memorable. That's a momentous occasion that I'd be very happy to take part in. Regardless, regardless, uh, Ubisoft addresses the possibility of $70 games in 2021. So let's see. Uh, Ubisoft CFO Frederick Dugo admitted that the company is evaluating its game prices but hasn't made a final call. In terms of pricing, okay, he's he sounds French. I'm going to give him the French accent. Here it goes. <clears throat> In terms of pricing, we have been analyzing the competitive dynamics of the last quarter, and we are still looking at new opportunities, but we have not made any decision yet. So, they haven't, they're not the only ones that talk, have talked about this. Take Two has talked about this. Um, it looks like that's it, maybe. Um... Oh, and we've already seen a couple. This article says we've seen a couple $70 games already. We've seen Demon's Souls and Destruction All-Stars on the PlayStation 5. And Sony CEO Jim Ryan has argued that $70 is a fair price for PlayStation 5 games. Let's see what he said. He said, yes, I do consider $70 games fair. If you measure the hours of entertainment provided by a video game such as Demon's Souls compared to any other form of entertainment, I think it's very straightforward comparison to draw. Come on, Jim. Come on, Jim Ryan. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think a $70 game is the way to go, is the future. And I'll tell you, my thinking has changed because I was in the... I guess I was in the camp that said, hey, a $70 game seems like a reasonable price because we have not had a game's price increase in a long time. In a long time. I don't know how long it's been, but it's been a long time. But that's not entirely true, is it? Because we have had game price increases. Can you think of a game that has been released in the last year that has not had downloadable content, season pass, bonus skins, loot boxes, or other kinds of microtransactions and mini transactions that have cost you more than that original $60 price for the game. Can you think of a game that's had some DLC now that maybe was part of that original game that felt like it could have been in that original game, but was maybe removed because they wanted to sell it to you separately. You see all the time, like I say, I'm a Microsoft boy. What can I say? You see all the time in the Microsoft store. I'm sure it's the same in the PlayStation store. I'm sure it's the same on steam, but games are being sold as deluxe editions premium editions, game of the year editions, complete editions, 
why would you sell a game as a complete edition if it's the DLC that made it a complete edition that wasn't included in the original game? It's because you took the DLC out so you could sell it to us separately, didn't you? And so we've already been paying more than that $60 price tag. So do I think that when these $70 games are released that that DLC purchase is going to go away, that that microtransaction is going to disappear, that those skins are going to be removed from their store, that the loot boxes, if they're not yet made illegal, are going to be gone from the game as well? Of course not. Of course not. They're going to make that $70 game plus everything else that I just described. And so I don't, I don't think that the $70 game is a price that the consumer needs to shoulder, especially with the massive move away from physical copies and physical sales and the digital purchase of a game. And it's not a game that we even own in perpetuity anymore. It's not a game that we can just pull our SNES out of the closet, pop the cartridge in and go. It is a game that belongs to that company's ecosystem. And as soon as that ecosystem is gone, the game is gone as well. So you are actually paying a larger price for less of a product. Hmm. Things to stew on and things to think about, I think. And the last bit of news that I have in the gaming world is Cyberpunk 2077 Studio falls victim to a ransomware attack and a data leak is threatened. I don't know. Oh, here's the here is the uh, letter that the, <laughs> the hackers sent them. Let's see if I can open it up. I'm on I'm online, but I'm also on Twitter now, but I don't think I'm, I'm logged in on Twitter online. I'm such a bad boy. I'm using Twitter without a login. Look at me go. Okay, so they they got hacked. Their source code was taking taken uh, from uh, Cyberpunk 2077 from The Witcher 3 from something else. Oh, they okay. I'll, I'll just read you the letter. Okay, this is the this is the hacker. Let me see if I could do the hacker voice. Maybe I'll just do the Bane. I'll do the Bane voice. Here we go. You have been epically pawned. We have dumped full copies of the source code from your proof or server for Cyberpunk 2077, Witcher 3, and the unreleased version of Witcher 3. We have also dumped all your documents relating to accounting, administration, legal, HR, investor relations, and more. Also, we have encrypted all of your servers, but we understand that you most likely recover from backups. If you will not come to an agreement, then your source codes will be sold or leaked online, and your documents will be sent to our contacts in gaming journalism. Your public image will go down the shitter even more, and people will see how shitty your company functions. Investors will lose trust in your company, and the stock will dive even lower. You have 48 hours to contact us. <clears throat> That's a good voice to do, but man, it's tough on the old vocal cords. Anyway, so like a lot of other people have said, the source code uh, delivering this leaked and stolen information to journalists, there's not going to be a journalist worth their weight 
that's going to publish the thing. I mean, I say that, but then there's you get get it to one unscrupulous journalist. There are going to be echo chambers that will repeat these uh, the information that's found within, perhaps. Um, and there's not going to be anyone that they can sell a source code for a game like if CD Projekt Red's source code for Cyberpunk 2077 was sold. You know, Bungie is not going to put out a Cyberpunk 2078. Be like, yeah, we uh, we made this whole game by ourselves. Don't worry, <laughs> don't worry about where we got the code from. I'm sure they can check that too. Maybe I don't know, but regardless, uh, that's a bad situation. That is a bad situation, and so that is going to be, I, I think, kind of a good segue into what I wanted to talk about, really. Tonight, what I wanted to uh, talk to you about was uh, archival, and I think about this stuff all the time. Like I think about what we are all leaving behind. I think of I think about what we make and what we create, and where it's going to go. Will it be forgotten? Will it be buried in the sand? And I think if there are good archival practices, and there are people behind dedicated to the preservation of all kinds of media and information and most specifically and importantly art and i do think that video games are art they are a story that you get to take part in they are something that you get to live in the body of a character or in uh in control of some aspect of the world and though you're I guess your character may not have the most ability to change the world. You will be able to live through that through not just, not just the movie that you watch a sound that you hear, but through that tactile response, through your ability to make small adjustments to the story. So one of the things that I I've been worried about for a while, and this is this, these are the kinds of things that keep me up at night. These are the kind of things that keep me awake. (laughs) And I was worried about what's going to happen to all these video games once they're obsolete, you know, they're that full price $70. And then, you know, they come down their $30 and their $10 and they're discounted to $2 for your special summer sales and your winter sales and your spring sales. But then, eventually no one is going to buy them anymore and you're going to add them to your free services where it becomes a perk that you you get the service and you also you get this game that you know no one's buying anymore but it's out there and so you might get a few more people watching it or reading it or looking looking at it but eventually this game is not going to have the kind of draw even on a free service that it might have otherwise had and so what then? What happens to the game? And so there's some difficulties in uh, archiving games. As, as I was looking into this because I was curious a few episodes ago about, there was an article about a museum that did some game archival. And I was thinking, well, how do they go about that? I mean, can I start a museum and just call up game studios and say, hey, you need to send me your games because I'm working on preserving the past. I'm working on preserving the history that you have made in your in your game. And so some of the difficulties are, you know, the games, they're harder to archive than books or movies because 
a book, <clears throat> you know, there's bigger books and smaller books, but largely they're the same format. Some may have illustrations, some not, but they're text, they're on paper or, you know, more and more digitally now, but their games are not the same way. And especially with all of the competing infrastructures for games, the Sony's, the PlayStation's, the PC's, Sony is PlayStation, the Microsoft's, the Nintendo's, those sorts of things. Uh, there's also difficulties when it comes to uh, networks and servers and other kinds of infrastructure that's needed to play the game and whether those have disappeared or not. Or some games rely wholly on a community. And there, if there is no community there, if the community is disbanded or the community is small, that game experience is not going to be the same as when that game was in its heyday, when it had the most number of people doing the most number of things. There's game companies that might go out of business and they might lose or have their source codes destroyed in some way, maybe intentionally, malevolently by a, a ransomware attack like Cyberpunk just had or you know, accidentally someone, someone, had, they just hit the delete button accidentally. I'm sure that can't happen. No one's given that much power. There's a copy. Uh, there's also copyright considerations. Uh, the DMCA, the digital millennium copyright act of 1998 has put a lot of restrictions on where you can copy someone else's intellectual properties too. And so there were some key exceptions that I, that I saw when I, that I found when I was doing my research and most of my research came off the wiki page. So I'm not going to make any hidden truths about that. I, my research is as far as my wiki fingers can travel, but some key exceptions for were made for video game preservation. In 2003, uh, there were protections made for obsolete formats that required original media or hardware as a condition of access. So, I mean, I guess in this way, we're probably looking at older, I don't know, Atari games, arcade cabinets, maybe. Uh, in 2015, there was another exception made. And so a lot of these are very recently. Well, I mean, the DMCA is very recently recent as well. If you think 1998, oh shit, that's 23 years ago. <laughs> Never mind. That's not super recent. Why? Why is time so fast and so cruel? Anyway, in 2015, there's been workarounds, uh, copy protection for preservationists for online games that require online connectivity, but were no longer online. And so that didn't cover MMOs, but uh, emulators mostly for online uh, online games. There was another exemption made in 2018 for MMOs allowed um, that allowed preservation and fair use for server-based games, permitting to offer games where legally obtained source codes for museums and libraries. Okay, okay. So now we're getting into into preservation, and <clears throat> I I found out that this is kind of an ongoing battle between preservationists. And, uh, and the publishers for these games. In 2018, Nintendo filed a lawsuit against two websites that distributed ROMs for older games. So, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the different definitions just so we all don't get confused. I mean, you're going to be confused by the end of this because I'm the one explaining it. And like we determined earlier, I am actually a moron. So emulation, uh, basically it's software that replicates the hardware environment for a specific video game. So you have a program that acts like it is a Super Nintendo, or it acts like it is a Sega Genesis that will run games or will run the code from those games, the ROMs, I guess, uh, for those games to be able to play them successfully. Now, there are uh, official types of emulation and there is illicit types of emulation. And so the official types of emulation are like what Microsoft is doing with their their backwards compatibility uh, gaming. So all of the Xbox and Xbox 360 games that can be played on an Xbox One or now an Xbox Series uh, S or Series X, all of that backwards compatibility is emulation in some form or another. They are replicating that environment of those older systems to be able to play those older games. And my gosh, it's sure appreciated. But a, an illicit form of emulation, and I'm not saying that we have done this in our family, but some people have done this, and they're outright criminals. If you're listening to this, if you're watching this, and you are one of these people, you are absolute scumbags, and I really shouldn't have downloaded all of those games onto my SNES Classic. Because that is another type of emulation. Don't do it. You wouldn't steal a car. You, you wouldn't steal a purse. Remember those old pirating videos? Oh, this is, so there's official and then there is illicit or illegal emulation. Then there is migration. And so the difference between migration and emulation is emulation, it, uh, it doesn't change the game. It just makes it so the game can then be played on that system. Migration changes the game in a way that allows it to be played on newer platforms. So it's recreating a game uh, or recompiling and porting from an old system uh, to a new system. So then basically it's, it's just, it acts like the old game, but it's not really the old game. Then you've got abandonware and that's uh, software that can run on current consoles or PC but the developer has disappeared or they don't sell the software or they don't operate the necessary servers uh, to run the software. So it's gone. And that's another, another problem, another issue that we can run into. There's fan driven efforts for this kind of preservation. And in a lot of cases, those are shut down by the developer or by the studio because the studio doesn't want any part in the nonsense, <laughs> in the nonsense, what the fans are trying to do. And it's a shame because in most cases, the fans are trying to do it because they love the thing. It's not because they dislike it because they want to see it ruined. It's because they enjoy it. They want to see it kept forever. They want to see their great, great grandchildren play the thing that they love. So in some cases, fans of video games um, have helped to preserve the game to the best of their abilities without access to a source code. Even though the copyright nature of these fan projects are highly contentious, it says, and more so 
when monetary issues are involved. So uh, one of the things or one of the ways um, that we preserve video games is by is through databases or databases, depending on how wrong you are. And <laughs> uh, reddump.org stores the hash and metadata information for over 70,000 video game disk dumps. Nointro.org stores the metadata and hashes for cartridge and DLC-based games and content. These systems act as a card catalog to track game releases across various regions, comparing software revisions and other data such as serial numbers and barcodes. And that is another thing. That is another, another thing that is hard to capture in these preservation efforts, in these archival efforts is when you get a game that comes out and the game is incomplete in some way, or it is buggy. And um, we have recent example of that with cyberpunk 2077. And so that game is constantly being updated until it is in a more whole state or a state more in line with the developer's vision in the future. When you play a game, you are not going to get that original buggy game. You're going to get a game that has gone through all of the necessary fixes, all of the necessary uh, remediations that it needs to, to be a more perfect game. And so you're, there is no real or best way to preserve this medium or to preserve the experience that we all have with these new games. So source codes for older games, um, uh, let's see, before rights were strongly controlled by publishers were often kept by the programmers themselves, and they may release those or may be part of their estate after death. In one case, a lost Nintendo Entertainment System game, an earlier version of Days of Thunder uh, by Chris Oberth, who had died in 2012, was recovered from source code on floppy disks from his work materials in 2020 by the Video Game History Foundation with permission of his family. Um, so preservation of video game hardware is a whole other topic. I'm mostly talking about games. The uh, video game hardware, obviously there's challenges there, whether it's, you know, finding the hardware. And as video game preservation becomes more and more pre prevalent and uh, archival becomes more and more important to those people that work within this particular industry, they will be able to to capture these types of things before they need to go back and find these types of things. And so I'm sure the newest systems that were just released, the Xbox series and the PlayStation 5, they've got several of those just for preservation and archival. Uh, and in looking in, into this stuff, there is uh, a few resources if you are interested in, in looking at the Library of Congress uh, launched the National Digital Information Infrastructure and Preservation Program, the NDIIPP, in 2000 to preserve non-traditional media. <clears throat> Interesting. Around 2007, the LOC, that's the Library of Congress, uh, started to reaching out to partners in various industries to help explore how they archive such content. So they funded the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign um, to develop the ECHO Depository. Oh, man. Okay, this is 
the echo dep is the acronym and it stands for exploring collaborations to harvest objects in a digital environment for preservation program uh there's the preserving virtual worlds was one project funded by the LOC and conducted by the Rochester Institute of Technology, Stanford University, and the University of Maryland, and the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, along with support from Linden Lab, running from 2008 to 2010, and it explored a range of games from Space War in 1962 through Second Life uh, in 2003 to determine what methods could be used for preserving these titles. Now, my dream preservation, my dream archival is to walk into the video game museum, the national or the world video game museum, and be able to, to pull any game off of a list that I see in a computer screen. And these museums don't have to be big. It can all be done digitally with big, huge server rooms in the back that no, no one in the public ever sees. Pull that game off. Put on some headphones and just go back to playing Donkey Kong Country for the SNES. Go go back to playing the old Batman game for the Sega Genesis or uh, Streets of Rage for the Game Gear. Play for an hour. Here's my, my library card, my video game card. And then take off. That's the dream, man. That's the dream to be able... To have as many people as possible experience as many games as possible, I think is the, I mean, it's my dream. It's not like I'm in a position to do anything about it, but I'm very happy to know these efforts are taking place. It puts my mind at ease and allows me to sleep a little bit better. We've got the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia announced in September 2019. They are going to start uh, creating an archive of Australian developed video games for preservation and exhibition with games to be added on an annual basis. And so that's the way you've got to do it, especially now, especially as there are so many games being introduced year to year to year to year that you get that back catalog done. And then you just keep up with it. That's all you have to do. Not, <laughs> see, it's not a problem at all. I actually am going to do it. I'm going to start my own archive. It's going to be the Friday Show Dustin Archive of Video Games and Exploration Technology Development and Urban Psychopaths. I don't know. Internet Archive started adding emulation of video games from older systems for play. The archive developed Emularity a web browser based on based emulator to run a number of out of production arcade console and computer emulations and offer numerous titles to be played through the archive. The project's maintainer, Jason Scott said that most companies do not take issue with their ROM images being offered in this manner, but did note, and here's Nintendo again, that Nintendo has put pressure on them to not include any Nintendo consoles within the collection. The Video Game History Foundation, um, Frank Cifaldi is one of the leading historians in the video game industry trying to encourage more video game preservation and to help recover games once thought lost. By 2017, he had spent about 20 years trying to encourage pres preservation as to track video game history and established the nonprofit Video Game History Foundation in 2017. 
The foundation not only seeks to preserve games, but box art, manuals, and promotional materials from video games, believing that these combined can help future historians understand the culture of games in the past. It's bizarre to think that something that we have as a hobby, as entertainment, as something that relaxes our body and our mind and soothes our very soul, adventures that we can go on from the comfort of our own living rooms, it's amazing to think that these things have cultural significance. It's amazing to think that there are people in the future that are going to be curious about the mundane things that we enjoy and love today. Interesting. The National Video Game Museum uh, in the United States bore out of archival work performed by John Hardy, who had run the Classic Gaming Expo. During this time, Hardy had collected a number of video game materials from others and his own efforts. The collection of material collected through interest from industry events, including uh, E3 and GDC, the Game Developers Conference, helping to promote the collection. Hardy exhibited the materials through traveling shows and got interest from Randy Pitchford. There's a lot of other ones, too. I'm not going to go through every title in this. We've got the Center for Computing History, the Strong Institute, Video Game Heritage Society, Game Preservation Society, National Software Reference Library, the Hong Kong Game Association, the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment Flashpoint, and uh, and re-releases. Now, that's a lot. If you want to look into game archival and preservation I, I think we're in good hands. And this is this is the first of a couple I'm going to do on archival and preservation. I'm going to do one for movies and television shows as well. And it's it's interesting because as far as these video games are concerned, right now it seems like preservationists and archivists are relying very heavily on the developers and the publishers of games to archive their own damn games, basically. Like Microsoft, you have a weighty responsibility to make sure that your ecosystem survives with all of this historical content on it. PlayStation, Nintendo, you too shoulder this burden of responsibility to make sure that our shared history, regardless of the intellectual property uh, and the property owner, our shared experience, our shared history of these games. Until your system or your ecosystem goes defunct, at which point I, Dustin of Culture Jacked fame, am depending on you. I implore you that you need to make sure that these games, these historical documents are handed over to the preservationists and the archivists that, that do this sort of thing, that make sure that historians and aficionados and those collectors, both amateur and professional, have something to go back on. I don't know why it's so important to me. I don't know why it's a thing that I have I have fixated on. And I'm 
I've only just begun my research. This is not the end. I, I just wanted to get a first blush at it and give you a first blush at it as well, because I didn't know about it. Maybe you did. You're already probably way smarter than me. We've seen how, <laughs> how regular words can trip me up. That I think is going to be the show. Remember, remember, stay past the weekend here on Culture Jacked, and you can check out that Monday Madness episode. We did. He did have a great one this last Monday. He talked about our 100th episode, how we're so happy to have made it here, how we've been going strong and we're going to continue going strong, and we're so happy to have you along for the ride. He also talked about his favorite directors, and he pulled some real oddball choices out of there too. So go back and check out that episode. I also have... WandaVision episode 5 and it's Friday today so there's another episode of WandaVision out so if you want to you can check out my discussion of episode 5 before you get into that episode of WandaVision episode 6 and tomorrow good lord there's nothing but Culture Jack this week tomorrow I'll be doing another episode of on today's episode featuring WandaVision episode number 6 we get to see what Evan Peters Quicksilver is up to. As always, you can contact the show. You can get a hold of us on Facebook or Twitter at Culture Jacked. If you want to you send us a story, send us a reaction, send us a discussion, plot point, whatever, you can email us at culture.collective.x2 at gmail.com. But that's it for the Friday show. Thank you so much for sharing some time with me at the end of your week. Now go out, have a good weekend. Stay tuned for on today's episode and stay tuned on Monday for the Monday Madness Show. Have a good weekend. Cheers. Cheers.